Father, as you and your word examine us and study us in the next 30 minutes or so, we pray that we would receive from you what you want us to receive, that you would encourage us, that you would speak to us. God, that our hearts would be open to you and your ways. And God, we need help just to remain alert. We're human, and our brains are weak, and our bodies are tired. And so help us in our humanness to engage with you and what you want to say. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, if you want to open up to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians is all about living for and with Jesus while waiting for Jesus. It's about our life in Jesus, our faith in Jesus, our walk with Jesus while we wait for his return. And so Kelly's going to come read beginning in chapter 3, verse 11, through chapter 4, verse 8. First Thessalonians, beginning in chapter 3, verse 11. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Finally then, brothers... We ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. So there is a direct link between what you believe and how you live. There's a direct link between your faith and your sanctification, which is your process of becoming more and more turned into the image of Jesus. There's a link between your faith and holiness. You're being set apart for God and God's ways, living the way God created humans to originally live. The reason I'm bringing this up is because, if you remember, chapter 3 was all about faith, and now chapter 4 is all about walking in that faith. And sometimes those little numbers, the number 4, confuses us because we think, oh, it must be separating and a new thought. And even the word finally there can make us think that he's changing subjects, but he's not. What he's doing, what God is doing here, is he's trying to link what you believe, your faith, with how you live your life every day. 
And so if you look with me, just as a way of reminder, in chapter 3, look at what he says. If you've been here, you probably have the word faith circled in chapter 3 as we've gone through. And if you don't, I'd encourage you to do that in your journals. But look at what he says in verse 2 at the end. He says he wants to establish and exhort you in your faith. And then look at verse 5. Halfway through, he says, I sent to learn about your faith. And look at verse 6. He says, but now Timothy has come to us from you and has brought the good news of your faith. And then look at verse 7. We have been comforted about you through your faith. And then look at verse 10 at the end. He says, um, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. So chapter 3 is about your faith. It's about your believing. Remember we put the chair up here? It's about what you think about Christ. Faith is a full word. It's about your passions. If you have faith in Christ, it means you love him. You're zealous for him. You see him as everything. You find your satisfaction in him. You see him as the answer to everything you could ever need and want. That's faith. It's a turning to, to Jesus for life and breath and everything that he has to offer in us. And so he, he tells us that he wants us to increase and grow in our faith. And then we get to this benediction, remember that, in, in verse 11, which is sort of a faith booster. It's a pronouncement of, now may God do this. It, it's meant to encourage your faith that God is active. And in the benediction, there's three things that he says, may God do it. The first is, may we come to you. He wants to get reunited. He wants them to spend some time in community together. But then he says two other things. He says that he wants them to abound in love. Do you see that in the benediction? May the Lord make you increase and abound in love. This is a pronouncement. May do it. Abound in love. And then he says, so that, verse 13, you may establish, he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness. So the benediction is, may God help you love each other more, and may you live in holiness. So he's trying to boost your faith that God can do that. God can help you love other people more. And, and God can also help you in your holiness, in the way you live your life, to be set free from sin more and more. So he boosts your faith. But then look at the connection with me. I don't know if you caught it when Kelly read, but three times in chapter 4, verses 1 to 8, he talks about holiness. So he's saying, have faith, God's at work in your holiness, and now he's going to talk about your part in your holiness. Did you see that? Verse 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is the same exact word as the word holiness in the Greek. And if you look down in verse 4, he says, control your own body in holiness. And then he says, for God is not called, this is verse 7, to impurity but to holiness. So you get what's happening? It's, it's here's what God wants to do. Now walk in it. Do, join God in what he's doing. And then look at, down at verse 9, he talks about brotherly love. So the benediction is a faith booster so that you'll walk, you'll believe God is with you as you walk the way that he wants you to walk in holiness and in brotherly love. Do you get that? This is important because we can disconnect. We can think our faith is backwards looking. I have faith in what Jesus has done for me in his death and in his resurrection. He saves me. But faith is also forward looking. It's here's what God is going to do. I believe he's going to do it. And if you're going to walk how you ought to walk, you've got to have faith that God is going to do the work with you. Because he will, and he wants to. It's not he does the justification and you figure out your sanctification. It's I'm going to do your justification, and I'm going to be right there with you, helping you get set free from sin and to live the way that I want you to live. And so that's what this next section really is all about. 
It really is all about your faith, and if your faith is the kind of faith that justifies, it will also be the kind of faith that sanctifies. Does that make sense? It's sort of a test. It's the test whether your faith is the kind of faith that justifies if it's also sanctifying. In other words, sanctifying faith always comes after justifying faith. You're not going to be justified, but not in the process of being sanctified. So they work together, but they work by faith. And this morning, the specific area that he's going after is our sexuality. He's going after our sexuality. He's saying, listen, walk as you ought to walk in faith in your sexuality. And so before we even get into that, there's a couple of just pastor things that I want to say. I could take you to verses. I don't have time to do that. This is kind of like, in order just to care for us, because you, you jump into a passage like this, and I think there needs to be some context laid and just some things that need to be said prior to that. So the first thing is this. Just, these are just mats, hopefully care for you before we jump into this discussion. And that is that God did create you with a sexual identity and with a sexual appetite. God created you with that. God created you either as a man or a woman, boy or girl, male or female. We are equal in value, equal in worth, both in the image of God, yet different in roles and made different so we complement one another so that when people see us, they see Jesus more fully, God more fully, okay? So you have an identity, and we also have a sexual appetite of some kind. Some, some of it's stronger than others, but we do, and you need to know that that's good. It's good. I don't know if you've been taught, but it's good. It's not bad. It's a gift from God. So as we launch into this, keep that in mind. The other thing here is this. Sexual sin is not the unpardonable sin. I, I don't know, we're a variety of ages in the room, but if you had any part in the 90s movement, the purity movement, you may have experienced that this sin, sexual sin, is the sin of all sins. Um, I think during that time, there was good intentions, but the singular focus was out of balance. <laughs> that sexual purity was overemphasized. It was elevated as the ultimate goal. And then also brought shame, almost unforgivable shame for anyone who failed in that area. So I don't know where you fit in that, but you need to know that it is not the unforgivable sin. And even when we read verse 6 of chapter 4, where it talks about God being an avenger for people who do this, he is an avenger to people who don't repent and turn from sin. We know that. But know that God says a very similar thing in Romans 1, and the list of things that he pours out his wrath on include everything from murder to disobeying your parents to sexual misconduct. So I think I'm guilty. I know I disobeyed my parents many times. My mom and dad are watching this. They're going, yep, many. Many deserved spankings I received. So just be careful that we don't raise this up to a level that it shouldn't be raised up to, that somehow God sees that sin different and punishes it differently. Third thing, no big surprise, but we live in a culture that is obsessed with sex and sexuality. It's obsessed. And it's very confused. Confused, confused, and obsessed. But I want you to know this, that that's really nothing new. I know that depending on how long you've been alive and, and your experiences, we can feel like, oh my goodness, what's happening to our culture? Well, listen, it's nothing new. A few centuries before Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians, there was a guy 
who wrote this. He wrote, Mistresses we keep for our pleasure, concubines for our day-to-day physical well-being, and wives to bear us legitimate children. So guys were shacking up with three women to get three different needs met. That's jacked up. Okay, that's not right. It was so messed up that later on, when Jesus was a child, actually, there was this emperor named August who tried to pass laws to reform marriage because there was so much immorality and so much corruption. He even recognized this is wrong. Something's messed up. And he tried to bring reform through laws to correct some of that. And then during the time that Thessalonians was written, during the time of this church, prostitution was legal. It was legal. You could be a prostitute. There was no law against it. I mean, today they shut down the brothel on 144, right? You guys know it was there, and they closed it down. Here, they wouldn't close it down. And and men would get up on Saturday morning, I guess, and go to their temple for worship, and there'd be women there waiting for them. That was just common practice. It wasn't even thought twice about. So it is, it's messed up now. It was messed up then. So we live in a culture that is obsessed and confused about sex, but it's not nothing, it's nothing new. Do you know why? Because the human heart is the same. Because it all comes out of the same sinful heart. It's really not a cultural issue. It's not from outside of us. The issue is we have a fallen nature that we're fighting against and that we take as humans, God's good, good gifts, and we mess them up. That's what we do. And so God here is trying to help us in verses 3 to 8 to restore and to think rightly about how your faith in this area of your life should impact how you live and how you walk. So I just want to share two things here about sexuality. Two things that are from this passage I think God wants to tell us this morning or speak to us about. And the first is this. God does have a will for your sexuality. In verse 3, he says it plainly, this is the will of God. So he has a plan. God has a purpose. God's not like, oh, do whatever you want. He's got a plan. And there's three main things he says here about what he wants, what his will is for our sexuality. The first one is seen in verse 3. He tells us very clearly, abstain from sexual immorality abstain from sexual immorality. This simply means this. Do not have sex outside of marriage. Don't have sexual relations with the same sex. Don't have sex with a relative. And don't have sex with animals. That's, that's what you read in the Bible from Genesis on. Those are God's, you know, don't do's. Don't engage in sex in ways God did not intend it to be. The second thing, it is clear here that it's God's will. He says in verse 4 and 5, control your body, control your body, so I'm, that means my eyes, my ear, everything about me, body, control it, and do not give in to the passions of lust. So he doesn't want us to give in to lustful, passionate cravings. He says instead have self-control, self-control about what you think about, you daydream about, you meditate on. Have self-control in what you look at. Have control of what you do with your body. He wants us to have our lustful, passionate cravings under control. Don't fantasize about them. Don't act about them. Control them. Be in control of them. And the third thing he tells us, that's his will for us, in verse 6, is don't wrong your fellow man in this way. 
He says, don't, don't wrong other people this way. He uses the word brother. There's lots of debate on exactly what that word, what he's getting to in that word. He's, he's certainly meaning fellow believers, but it seems he's broader than that, and he's saying, your fellow human. Don't wrong your fellow human sexually. Don't have romantic sexual encounters with another person's spouse. That's what it would mean to wrong your brother. Don't, don't go after somebody else's spouse. Somebody's married, leave them alone. So he says, pretty clearly here, so don't sin against or wrong another believer or another person sexually. And as I was kind of teasing this out in my mind, I thought there's kind of threads to this of what this could look like. I think there's something here about don't, don't wrong your brother or sister in Christ or not by flirting with their spouse. Don't, don't make them wonder what you're thinking about them by how you interact with them. Uh, be aware if you have an overzealous attraction for somebody else's spouse that's not your spouse. Be aware of that. Don't wrong or sin against a fellow human by drawing somebody else's heart away from their spouse in any way. It's a warning. Don't do that. So when he says don't transgress, don't sin or wrong, I think it can be broad. Like, how are, how are you interacting with your spouse and how is that different than how you act with other people's spouses? Now, I want to say this, because again, this can be taken way too far, and I think it has been in some of the circles I've lived in. I don't think this means that men in the church and women in the church who are not married to one another can't be friends. In fact, I think there could be something missing in the joy of church when there's a fear of, well, I can't talk to her right now because her husband's not standing next to her. I think there's something messed up about that. Like, I think we need to be okay with having conversations and, and enjoying conversations and relationships with people that we're not married to or of the opposite sex. I think that's okay. And of course, this takes wisdom, right? This takes wisdom. You need to be self-aware of what you're doing and why you're doing it. But I don't think we should refrain from it simply out of fear or out of what other people are going to think. Because I think God wants us to enjoy brother-sister friendships in the church with one another and outside the church. But the emphasis here really is on don't be naive, know your heart, don't wrong or sin against someone else or someone else's spouse. So here's the urging here or the asking that Paul says, I'm going to ask and urge you, consider your sanctification. I just want to ask you this morning, are you abstaining from all forms of sexual immorality? Are you? Where, where are you tempted? Are the people you are closest to know where you're tempted and how you're tempted? How can you grow, maybe another question, more and more at controlling your mind, your body, your imagination? Does it drift? Does it run? And I'm aware that this can happen to men and to women. I've counseled both, where imaginations can run wild in different ways and not, not under control. And, and I feel like I also need to say this, that if, you're, if your mind or imagination or desires run down roads that are in the area of uh, homosexuality or lesbian things, that we're here to help you. That's not the unpardonable sin either. So whatever you're dealing with, I counseled a guy who was having trouble with his animals. Okay? There, people, like, sin is sin, and it, it gets confusing. And so if you need help, let's help each other. 
let's help each other. Let's not make this like the, oh, we can talk about everything, but don't talk about that. No, you can talk about it. Like, we need to help each other. And there's temptations out there all over the place in different ways. I also just want to add this. I know that there may be some in this room, and you have, you've sinned grievously sexually in the past. And again, just a reminder that as I ask these questions, there's forgiveness. If you love Jesus, you've been forgiven. You're cleansed. You're pure. You're whole. There's no guilt. There's no condemnation. There's no shame. You're free. You may need help believing that, and we're here to help you believe it. Because somehow, for some reason, sexual sins heap on more guilt and condemnation and shame than many other sins. And so as a church, we should help each other get out from underneath that and experience God's grace. And so even though I share these things, you know, abstain from sexual immorality, grow more and more controlling your body, uh, maybe you're sitting here and you're feeling a conviction from the Holy Spirit. You're just feeling this, this, this weight, this conviction in your heart. And you need to know that that's good. Be grateful for that. That is a wonderful thing. Be nervous. If you know you are sinning deliberately, sexually, and you feel no conviction, <laughs> that's when you should be scared. But if you're feeling that conviction, you need to celebrate the Spirit in your heart, that He's there and He's speaking to you. Be grateful for that. And then maybe just pause right now even and, and pray for the Spirit to keep working and to work more. And, and then be poised as we keep going here of what it looks like to repent, because we're going to talk about that. What does it look like to change and to be set free? Be ready for that. Be ready, because it's coming in just a few minutes. So God has a will. It's not like we wonder what does God think about how we're to be as sexual beings. He tells us very clearly in his word how we're supposed to live as sexual beings. And so my second point is this, and this may seem repetitive, but bear with me. God's will is God's will. God's will is God's will. I just want you to hear this because I think this is very strongly emphasized in the text, but could easily be overlooked. This is not man's will. This is God's will. This is not God's suggestions. This is God's commands to us. The three things I just read to you about what his will is, those are commands from God. So verse 3, he says, for this is the will of God. Pretty simple, right? <laughs> then look at verse 2. He says, For you know what instructions, that word for instructions is a, is a military term. It's a command. It's a mandate. What instructions we gave you, Paul is saying, through the Lord Jesus. So he was giving them, but he was only giving them because Jesus gave them to him. And then look down at verse 8. He says, therefore, whoever disregards or rejects this, disregards or rejects not man, but God, who gives us the Holy Spirit. So he puts in this little tiny place three times where he tells us that this is what God's will is, not Paul's opinion. This is God's will. This is God's command. To not do it is to not obey God. Now, you may be wondering, like, Matt, why are you making such a big deal about this? Why is this a big deal? Well, here's why. I think we must be more concerned 
about God's will than our own sexual desires. In other words, in discussions about sex and sexuality and challenges and temptations and lust, God's will must be at the center of the conversation, not what I feel or what I want. It must be at the center of it. And these verses really are as much about God as they are about sexuality. I don't know if you caught it. Nine times in these eight verses, we read God, Lord Jesus, Lord, Holy Spirit. Nine times in eight verses. Do you think that God is trying to tell us something? That he's going to reference his name nine times in eight verses in a discussion about our sexuality and about sexual temptation. In other words, this is primarily about God. This is a God issue. And God wants to be at the middle of all of it. And nowhere and at no time does God take up a survey and ask our opinion about our sex or sexuality. Nowhere does he ask for our preferences. God is saying, look, I want you to know that this is my will and that my will is good because I am good. And there it is. It's about God. It's about the one who created you. Created you male or female. The one who created sex now out of love says to you, here's how to do it and not mess it up. Here's how to do it and avoid pain. Here's how to do it without suffering. And and here's how to do it and enjoy it the way that I created you to enjoy it. So this really is about God. This whole thing is about God. And I, I, again, here I'm off-roading a little bit, but I think you need to be aware, I need to be aware, that there are leaders, there are pastors, there are bloggers out there that claim to be Christian that will tell you whatever you want to hear about your sexuality. They're out there. If you want to practice homosexuality, practice it. Please, hear me, differentiate between practice and being tempted. Massive difference. If you're being tempted that way, or you have a leaning that way, that's not sin. It's when you act on it. So if you need to talk about that with someone, please, let's talk about it. That's different. But listen, if... You want to practice it. There are people out there who will persuade you to believe that for thousands of years the church has got it wrong and misunderstood it and that God's will has and always will be for men to marry men and women to marry women. Some will tell you that it's okay for men to have multiple wives. I I know someone who left the church to go somewhere so he could live in a compound where he could have multiple wives. So it's out there and learned it on the internet, believe it or not. And, and Paul, Paul talks about this in 2 Timothy. The verse is going to go on the screen. You've heard this before. For the time is coming. I'm going to tell you, the time is not coming anymore. It's now. The time is now when people will, endorse, will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers. They're going to accumulate. They're going to gather teachers, bloggers, books, podcasts, YouTubers. They're going to gather them together to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Listen, God is speaking here. God is clear. This is God's will. If bloggers or YouTubers tell you differently, they're wrong. God is right. They are wrong. And so don't give in and beware you can find someone who will support any theory, doctrine, thought you have. You'll find it because it's out there. Sadly, it's out there. So God does have a will. And his will is for men and women 
to enjoy sex in marriage and to live free from the pain and the hurt and the addiction and the bondage that comes from sexual immorality, from the lack of self-control, and from the lust of passion. And so let me ask and urge you this morning to receive these words as God's words and not man's words. We say that every week, but you gotta, we gotta fight for that. This is God talking to us. What he says in here is true, it is right, and it's good. Because God is true, and God is right, and God is good. So believe it this morning. So here comes the, I kind of know my audience moment. (laughs) I'm guessing that 99% of you in this room believe everything I've just said. You're on the same page. You believe it. You receive these words as God's words. You know that what he says here about sexuality is true and right and good, and you embrace it. You receive them, and you want to obey them. But, like all of God's ways, easier said than walked in. And here's where the war begins. The war that Paul expressed so clearly. The very thing that I don't want to do, I do. And the things I do want to do, I don't do them. I don't know how often in a week you can identify with those words. I can identify with them whether it's something I do or just something I think or something I say. Or I wish I could go back and have a do-over. But I don't know if you've been there. But here, God gives us some ways to walk. And if you've been walking for even more than a day or two, trying to please God in how you walk, you know that you need a sustaining, powerful motivation to sever the allure and pleasures of sexual temptations and passions that war against your soul. You need something powerful to cut them. You need something powerful to motivate you. And so this leads us back to where I began this morning. Faith. Faith. This war to walk as you ought to walk is an issue of faith. It's about where you're placing your faith. And that's why Paul began, began, I began, in chapter 3, verse 2, where he talks about establishing and exhorting you in your faith. In 3.10, I want to supply what's lacking in your faith. I think what that means is there's areas of your life where your faith in Jesus hasn't quite reached yet or gotten into as much as God wants it to get into. And so he wants to supply what is lacking in there. In other words, he wants their faith to invade areas of their heart maybe where it hasn't yet. So he's telling them that the faith is not just about justification or about salvation, but your faith is also linked to your sanctification, to how you live in your sexuality. If you need another verse to kind of prove this, the one that is most simple to me is, Paul says here, he wants us, you saw it, to live to please God, right? You guys saw that? What verse is that? Verse 1, right? Walk in a way that pleases God. And there's a verse in Hebrews eleven six, which simply says, and without faith, it is impossible to please God. So I'm saying this is a faith issue for us. This is about what you believe. Let me see if I can explain this and how this works. I said a few weeks ago, I think I said it even this morning in the exhortation, that the most important thing about you is your faith. 
Actually, the most important thing about what you put your faith in. See, you, you spend every day putting your faith probably in something or in different things. This happens when you turn to something believing this will make me happy. This will satisfy me. You're, you're turning to that with faith believing. Let, let, me, let me illustrate. So I go to the fridge and I open the door and I, and I look in. I love food illustrations. I'm a foodie, I guess. And you've done this. It's full. And you go, hey, there's nothing to eat. Right? I do this. What I'm saying is there's nothing in here that's going to satisfy me. There's nothing in here that's going to make me happy. So I shut the doors, hop in my truck, drive to Safeway, buy the family pack of steaks, come home, grill them, and eat them. Why? Why will I spend the time and the money and the energy to do this? Because I have faith that the steak is going to satisfy me more than whatever was in the fridge. I have faith. I believe it's going to satisfy. I believe it's going to make me happy. We, we turn to the things that we crave that we want to find happiness in, and that's how sin works, specifically sexual sin. It holds out a promise of happiness. It offers you pleasure. It says, put faith in me. Believe in me. I'll make you happy. That's how it entices us. Listen, it's not, your life is not faith in Jesus or no faith at all. It's not faith in Jesus and then no faith in turning to lust. It's faith in Jesus or faith in something else. In other words, your, your craving for happiness and satisfaction and joy is always functioning in your heart. And you're either going to Jesus for it or you're going somewhere else for it. And sometimes we go for it in places that aren't quite as vividly sinful. But here he's addressing the issue of sexual sin. Will you, will you move towards someone or some other thing for some pleasure that you believe will satisfy you? So that's the way it works. And, and with sexual sin, it can be a craving for lots of different things. I'm bringing you into counseling meetings now that I've had over the years. It's not always just an, an animalistic, I want to have sex that causes lust. It can be you want rest or escape or respect. There's lots of things that are going to be attached to why we look to something else for pleasure. And so that's how sin works. That's the way sexual temptation works. It persuades you to believe that you'll be happier and more satisfied if you engage with it. It wants you to believe that what it has to offer will make you happier than if you walk the way that God wants you to walk. That's what it holds out. So when you pursue or give into passions of lust, you are putting your faith in the promise of the pleasure that it's holding out. You're tracking with me. You believe, or you give in, because you believe it's going to make you happy. So what do we do then, if this is an issue of faith? Obviously, it's not enough to just grin and bear it. Do what God says. Repent. Do what God says. No, it's more than that. It's do what God says because God is glorious. It's do what God says because in God, there are promises that will satisfy your hunger more than any other pleasure. That's what it's about. 
This is the fight of faith. The fight of faith is a fight of faith that God will make you happiest. It's a fight of faith that God is the happiest. <laughs> the fight of faith is a faith between, what we read in Hebrews, the fleeting pleasure of sin versus the eternal pleasure of God. There is a pleasure in sin. It's not completely lying, but it's fleeting and often destructive. And that comes up against God, who is the one of all pleasure. So I see a glimpse of this, and I want you to look here in verse 5. This is where I'm getting this from. I just said a lot without taking you to the text. Usually I try to take you to the Bible verse and then tell you. I'm working backwards a little. Look at verse 5. Why do the Gentiles lack self-control and give into the passions of lust? Look there in verse 5. Why? What's different between them and you? They do not, say it out loud. They do not know God. Listen, that is the game changer. Literally, it's funny, there's lots of different, I don't know, sometimes I get a little Greek nerdy, but there's a Greek word that really has to do with like relationships. It's a very relational word. That's not the word here, which is kind of ironic to me. So I had to figure out, what does this word mean? I don't understand what this word know really means. And it has to do with perceiving with your eyes. It has to do with visiting or interviewing someone. In other words, they've never visited God. They've never interviewed God. They've interviewed sexual sin and visited that, but they've never turned and visited or interviewed God. And so the difference, really, between the person who does not control his body and gives into lust and the person who controls his body is that they know God. It's a God issue. It's not having the right app on your phone to protect you from lusting. It's a God issue. It's not having 50 accountability partners, although that could be helpful. It's a God issue. This is about you interviewing God. So I say, fight fire with fire. Instead of letting your imagination and passions interview lust, let them interview God. <laughs> when your faith is tempted to believe the promises that the passions of lust hold out, fight it with greater promises. <laughs> There's greater promises out there. Let the promises of God and God's word entice your faith fuel your faith to believe that God has more to offer because it's eternal, it's not temporary, and it's good and right from him. So grab onto promises like, I love this one from Psalm 16, you make known to me the path of life. You make known to me the way to live. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So interview lust. Lust, how much joy do you got? Well, guess what? God's got full joy. How much pleasure are you offering sexual temptation? And how long is it going to last? Well, guess what? God's pleasures are forevermore. So I think I'm going to go after full joy and forever pleasure rather than go after you. See, faith, your faith is on a hunt for joy. Did you know that? Your faith is on a hunt, a quest for happiness and for satisfaction. Your, your soul, your faith hungers and thirsts. And that's why Jesus says in John 6, I am the bread of life. Why do you say that? Because he knows that your soul is hungry for bread. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. So interview lust. Lust, if I come to you, when I'm done, will I still hunger? Yes. So I'm going to go to Jesus because he says, I won't hunger anymore. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Your soul is thirsty. Thirsty for joy. Thirsty for satisfaction. So you say to lust, lust, are you going to make me thirsty forever? Or are you going to satisfy my thirst? Answer, 
You're going to be thirsty forever if you go to lust. So instead, thirst for Christ and turn to Christ. And he says, you shall never thirst. So your faith is hungry. Your faith is thirsty. And this applies to all sins. I mean, this applies to all of them, not just sexual sin. You're thirsty and you're looking for something. And we make decisions each day, either doing or not doing, walking the way God wants us to walk because we believe that's going to satisfy my thirst because it's from God, or we turn to something else thinking maybe that'll do it instead. And that's where we live every day in this fight. So I say, give your faith what it's looking for. Give your faith what it's craving. Give your faith Jesus. Give it Jesus. Take your faith to Jesus. Interview Jesus. Take everything you know about who he is, what he's done, what he's doing, and what he will do, and feed your thirsty soul. Let your faith not only look backwards to your justification, which we celebrate. Look what he did for me on the cross. Look what he did for me in setting me, uh, paying the penalty for all of my sins. And then let that same faith look forward. Look what he's going to do. Look what he is doing. Look what he can do. I think that's why every chapter in 1 Thessalonians ends with a proclamation of the coming of Jesus. Everyone. That's why the benediction here at the end of chapter 3 ends with, at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Your faith looks back on the grace you've already gotten, and then your faith looks forward to the grace that's yet to come. And let that feed your soul. Let that feed you and find joy in him. See, there's backwards-looking and forward-looking faith here. And I feel like he puts the nail in the coffin in verse 8, where he tells us that he gives you the Holy Spirit. He gives you his Holy Spirit. So in your fight for faith to believe the promises of God are better than the promises of any sin, you've got somebody dwelling in you ready to light that thing on fire. So let him do it. You got the Spirit of God in there, ready and waiting for truth and promises to come in to ignite your faith, to see the joy and the pleasures that are forevermore in your God. So that's his solution. Know God, interview God, be aware of God, drink in God, fuel your faith with God. Look at Jesus, behold him, and let him be your satisfaction. So I want to pray, and once again, if this is an area of life that you struggle with or have temptations in and you don't have anybody you can talk to, I'm here to talk. There's others. I'm sure you guys, hopefully guys and girls, have people in your community groups you can talk to, in your groups of three. But let's not make this like the, eh, I don't want to talk about it thing. I think we need to talk about it. Because I think it's, it gets weak when it's brought into the light. And then you can have other people help fuel your faith with truth. I, sometimes I need other people to remind me of who Jesus is to help me get through the day. Let other people help you, I pray. All right, let me pray for us. Whew, that's over with. <laughs> There's Sundays that are more fun than others. I have to say, this was not the most fun preparing this week, but I hope it was helpful. I hope it was helpful for us. So let me just pray for God's help. Lord Jesus, I, I thank you for your word. Thank you for um, creating us the way you did. God, we even thank you for putting a hunger in our hearts for joy. Because without it, we would not know to turn to you, the one who is joy. 
And so, God, I, I ask um, that we, as a church family and we as individuals, um, would know how to help one another in this area. I pray that we'd be humble. I pray that we'd be honest. I pray we'd be able to walk in the light, share things maybe with the right people that we've never shared before. I pray, God, for great healing. I pray for great encouragement. And I pray for freedom. Jesus, I know that you died not just to save us from the penalty of sin, but to save us from the power of sin. And so we believe the power of sin is broken and that, Jesus, we can turn to you now to find all the hope and all the joy and all the pleasures that there are that we crave. And so help us with that. Holy Spirit, help us with that. Help make the pleasures of Christ real in our hearts and in our minds, in our voices, in our actions, in our words. Do that, I pray. Bring healing where healing is needed. Bring encouragement where encouragement is needed. Bring repentance where repentance is needed, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.